me pone un, un épotes. Si tú no quieres hablar conmigo, dímelo para yo no llamarte ni molestarte, porque nada más quedaba tú. Real talk. Real people. Real stories. The He's Just Podcast. Yeah! Welcome, everyone, to another He's Just Podcast. I'm your host and founder of the He's Just a Social Worker Movement, Jules Dujay, with another amazing show for you today. But before we get started, I want to remind everyone that this platform was built because way too often, as people, we were overlooked or labeled. But this is no longer our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. You know, preventive health care involves taking measures to prevent disease rather than treating them once they happen. When you're promoting these health care behaviors, you're regularly exercising, you're practicing a balanced diet and having adequate sleep as good examples. Meet Alan Dockery, a seasoned healthcare veteran with over five decades of experience dedicated to saving lives and promoting well-being. From his humble beginnings in a small town near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to serving in the USA Air Force as a medic, and later transitioning to the roles in emergency medical services and registered nursing. Alan's journey has been defined by a commitment to excellence in healthcare. In 2022, after witnessing countless preventable tragedies throughout his career, Alan made a move. He made a decision to shift his focus towards prevention. This included writing a book, An Ounce of Prevention is Worth More Than You Can Imagine. Therefore, he took matters into his own hands, including launching a website, preventiveandsafety.com dedicated to providing information on preventive health and safety matters with a model that echoes his philosophy. The only good accidents and illnesses are the ones we prevent. Allen continues to champion proactive healthcare practices to ensure a healthier and safer future for all. Allen, welcome to our show. Jules, it sure is an honor to be here with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. You know, just introduce yourself. Tell us how you got involved in this work, friend. Well, again, I started out, and thank you for that wonderful bio. Uh, you know, you start off in the medical field when I was 17 and a half years old. I joined the United States Air Force and was a medic for 12 years. Got out and went into EMS and nursing and working all kind of jobs in the medical field. And it was quite fulfilling for me because I really love taking care of people. Uh, you know, when you're in healthcare, you're committed to taking care of people that have needs. But you know, after seeing so many people come down with illnesses, so many people in accidents, needless, I mean, hundreds of needless deaths because of things that could have been prevented, it struck me all of a sudden that you know, the real place we need to start focusing is on prevention, because if you can imagine the things that happen to people that can be preventable, I mean, look at all the, the health we could keep from deteriorating. Look at all the lives we could save just by 
really changing our mindset about preventive health and safety and putting a few really good practices into our lifestyle so that we are able to do those things. You know, when we're talking about preventive health, what should our listeners think about when they're making their medical appointments after listening to our show? Well, uh, well, you, you hit it right on the head. First of all, you know, the average American today does not have regular appointments. Uh, they don't go in to see their physician very often. Uh, I've heard people say, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So if they don't have something that's ailing them or a problem that they need to get checked out, they don't go in. And that's what preventive health is all about. Preventive health means, number one, going to see a physician regularly to see if anything can be identified that needs to be treated in its early stages. And then number two, getting some education around how your lifestyle may need some changes to enable you to live a long, healthy life. Just to give you an example, you know, the leading cause of death in the United States for many, many years is heart disease. I mean, that's goes without saying. So one of the causes of heart disease, one of the major causes is high blood pressure. And then, of course, anything that accumulates in the coronary arteries, uh, cholesterol and lipids and things of that nature. And so you look at that and say, okay, so if that's the number one cause of death in the United States, you would think that Americans will be really focused on doing whatever they can to keep from having any type of cardiac issues. Well, one of the things that causes high blood pressure and causes cholesterol issues and causes fat issues in the, in the blood vessels is being overweight or obese. And the truth is, uh, you look around today, and it's, it's a very obvious fact that that's something we haven't really taken very seriously. But it's one thing that you can do to make sure that you reduce your risk of having any type of cardiac issues. Mm. So, you know, and that's what this, that's what phase is all about. Preventive health and safety engagement is about getting out there and making people aware that they can do things to help lower their risk. I, I, I call it minimizing risk. You never get it down to zero. Life itself has a certain level of risk, but you can minimize that risk by looking at the risk factors in different disease processes, different accidents, and, and getting those things out of your life. I like your answer, and it's uh, like trifold in so many ways because you tapped into living a healthier lifestyle. And we've had past shows in the past where some of our guests have been experts in the field as well, such as yourself, who have talked about the importance of eating right. And when I talked about those safety behaviors or those good behaviors that we should be practicing, you alluded to having that annual checkup. Now, when we were talking about that, to me, one of the things that I'm thinking about as an adult, you know, time, work, and these things sometimes impact. So definitely, I want us to touch more about that throughout the show, about ways that our listeners can tap into that. But the most important thing that you talked about was around heart disease. And according to the CDC, about 695,000 people in the U.S. died from heart disease in 2021. 
That's about one in every five deaths related to heart disease. And this cost us roughly $240 billion each year from 2018 to 2019. Now, what can our listeners do about this? Now that we know these facts, uh, aside from eating right, not smoking, what are things that they can do when they visit their primary care physicians to alert them about staying safe? Uh, and that's a really good point because unfortunately, a lot of people, when they go see their physician, we live in such a fast paced society. I'm going to squeeze my doctor appointment in between these two other meetings I have. You get in there, you have your appointment and you, and you don't tell the physician everything he needs to know. The physician, just for example, when you're seeing a patient, you need to find out a little bit about what's going on right now, even if it doesn't seem significant. Well, you know, I started getting a little winded when I go upstairs. You know, it's probably just nothing. But the truth is, that is a sign of, of a pending heart issue. It could very well be that they have a blockage or something going on in their heart that needs attention. Or perhaps, you know, they notice that they, they get a little bit of chest discomfort once in a while that maybe goes down their left arm. Or, you know, uh, I'm just having trouble just getting every once in a while this palpitation feeling in my heart. If you don't relay those things to the physician and let him know what's going on, he'll never be able to find that out. And then secondly, family history. Unfortunately, family history is something we call an uncontrollable risk factor. Uh, many people have a family history of things like high blood pressure, diabetes, coronary artery disease, uh, high cholesterol, all those things that they may have a family history for, a lot of times are passed down and the, the children have the same type of symptoms and same types of condition and are just as prone to heart disease. That's why they'll always ask you, is your mother still alive? Is your father still alive? Are they healthy? Have they had any heart issues? Have they had any problems, any surgeries? Because they need to know that to be able to really customize what they're going to do for you in way of different procedures to be able to screen you for these various heart issues. That's a valid point there, friend, and one that I like to talk a little bit more about. There are many times that we are predisposed with information and we carry ourselves in that same fashion. My mom had it, so that's why I have it, or it runs in my family. These notions can be true to a degree. However, there are some steps that I believe people can take to relinquish this negativity that they have about some of these things. And I loved what you brought up. When you show up at the doctor's office, go prepare, have a list. Right now, we have these smartphones, we have these watches, we have all these technology-driven apparatuses that allow us to kind of tailor, track, pattern, trend, and so on. How come we're not using these to provide our doctors with this? Um, one of the things that some systems use is that you're able to connect via the internet with your doctor now. And some of this may have been prone after COVID and now became a lot easier to do, like my chart. You're able to connect with your doctor, set up the appointment, create opportunities to upgrade your medication. 
But what if you had your notes there? Just like you said, Alan, what if you had that information? You know, every time I take a flight of stairs, this happens. Every time I carry my son or daughter or I run, these are the things that happen. So thank you so much for those points, because I think that it, it is so important for us to begin to learn about ourselves in ways that are deeper. And yeah, the doctor may be running on time himself or herself, but we are pressed to show up on time. Once we're there, let's ask the correct questions. Now, I want to tap into your background with uh, dialysis. Two of the leading causes of kidney failure, and you mentioned one being high blood pressure, the other being diabetes, which are both treatable. These controllable conditions, what can you tell us about this once you're diagnosed? Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. And it goes right back to your opening statement. Uh, if people would get screened, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that maybe live in some impoverished areas and don't have really good access to health care or just have the attitude that, you know, they don't really need to go in. But uh, our dialysis patients, I love them to death and we do everything we can to take care of them. But end-stage renal disease or kidney failures is basically a terminal illness. It's something that's not going to get better. Uh, you know, they may get a transplant, which we hope for. We can keep them alive as long as possible on dialysis. But the truth is, it's, 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 it's an end-stage disease. It's going to eventually cause them to die. Going back years and years in history, there was a time when they began to start to develop high blood pressure. But high blood pressure often doesn't cause any symptoms. Now, sometimes you get a real bad, uh, your blood pressure is really high, you can get a fairly significant headache, but that doesn't happen all the time. And, and so they may go years and years and years without ever getting their blood pressure checked. And years and years of high blood pressure keep working and working and working on those kidneys and the, the different nephron units and the uh, the glomerulose structures inside the kidney where the pressure, it, I mean, that, they're pressure sensitive. You can imagine putting a whole lot of pressure on something that's not supposed to have that much pressure. Sooner or later, it's going to give out. And that's what happens. And so if they would have just taken some time somewhere along the line to see a physician and, hey, you have high blood pressure, all kind of medications now that are very safe. Uh, starting out usually with a diuretic that will get some of the extra fluid out and reduce your blood pressure. And then they can move on to other drugs that have been known to be very, very, very safe. And at the same time, keep that blood pressure in check. And then, of course, keeping an eye on it periodically. Diabetes. Oh, my goodness. The, the statistics of people that get into their 40s and 50s and then finally find out that they've had diabetes most of their lives, their retinas are starting to go bad, they have circulation problems, and that circulation problem again affects the kidneys. So you put those two together, which unbelievably, many, many of our patients come in and we look at the cause for their dialysis or for their uh, kidney failure, and it's diabetes and hypertension. But as you mentioned, if they're controlled well, they won't cause that damage inside the kidney. Mm. You know, first of all, I want to thank you and your team, Alan, for this type of work, because I know that a lot of the patients that you see, um, 
even though this is part of your job, it sounds like it is a very difficult thing to do day in and day out to make a connection with certain patients. Just the thought of, you know, maybe if this person would have taken better steps, maybe if this person can get these habits and then something about the human being that we only take prevention once we're in the red, once we're in that warning sign. So I'm very sad to continuously hear about this. But one thing you talked about access, right? And access to healthcare seems to be one of the biggest roadblocks in many ways. Many of the people who enter our country, whether they come from a migrate status or they come here undocumented or what have you, the situations are clear. Some of them come predisposed with illnesses from their homelands. And when they do enter, some of them go without care for years. And government has made steps. And I can talk about New York, for one, the health and hospitals corporations. And they're always sliding fee options in most of the states that I know of, where patients can visit and get sliding fee options to be seen. Now, these tools that you're providing for us are critical for them because their visits may be few and not often. So what am I thinking about as a person who has never been to the doctor, has entered the country about two years or three, never seen a doctor? Now that I get a chance to see a sliding fee option, what are the questions that you think I should be asking? As far as asking the physician, you mean? Yeah, obviously, they got to start from square one. I mean, you have to go back and, and talk about any past medical history you might have. Again, we need to talk about the different uh, options as far as uh, their family history goes and the things that have happened there and and things where they've been, where they came from. Uh, a lot of times disease processes are more prevalent in other areas than they are here in the United States. Uh, just for example, I did a, uh, a paper not too long ago on Madagascar and, and they've actually had a cholera breakout down there. They've actually had uh, different diseases that have just spread that have been totally eradicated in the United States. So while we think that we don't have measles and rubella and things like that, a lot of people coming in from foreign countries are still prone to that because they haven't been properly immunized. So mm -hmm. that's a real huge point. We've got to make sure that that people like that are, are starting from the very beginning. What was your immunization schedule like? Did you get this? Did you get that? Where are you with this? Because if they're not immune against these different diseases, there's a good chance they can catch them. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I know that this population deals with is the fact that they're worried about the medical bill, visiting the ER and the, and the transitions that always happen, but know that each hospital, each facility has someone who speaks their language. You can request language line. You can get access to providers who do understand and most likely make a connection with your ethnic background. So please don't be discouraged to visit and ask the questions. And like Alan says, provide them an in-depth history as best you can so that this information is in the forefront and may keep you alive. Now, Alan, I am really driven by the work that you do. And one of the things that caught my eye before getting to meet you was your way about taking care of the next man, 
being able to provide for the people who need it most. Now, I'm going to read a quote that comes from your site. It is a wonderful calling to be able to take care of those that are sick and injured. But how much more fulfilling would it be to prevent deaths, illnesses, and injuries? Tell me more about this, Al. I mean, I just can't. It's so heartbreaking to see people that have been injured or come down with a chronic illness that could have been prevented. And through the years, uh, I have been able to do a lot of education in the Air Force with the Air Force personnel on the base in the civilian population, trying to get the message out that they need to start thinking about their health. Uh, I've spoken to many people in youth programs and, you know, encouraged the, the, the youth centers to really place more emphasis on eating well. You know, when you show up at a youth center and you're having a, a little bit of a talk on preventive health and everybody's sitting there with a McDonald's bag, it, it was a really good illustration for me to hit. But, but that's why we are today. We're, and it's not all the children's fault. Mom works, dad works, they get home at five o'clock at night. They're too tired to cook all the time. And fresh fruits and vegetables and cook them properly and have a nice balanced meal. I mean, that's a thing of the past almost anymore especially for lower income people who my, my heart goes out to. Um, and you talk about availability to medical care. You know, some of these inner cities that have just these huge populations, I mean, they stand in line oftentimes at these free clinics to try to get their child or themselves treated for something that could potentially be serious. And that really breaks your heart. I, 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 I take my hat off to everybody that participates in these free clinics. I'm actually at 68 years old. You're not going to believe this. I'm actually in nurse practitioner school right now. And I'm really excited about getting finished so that I can go to some of these areas and just really be able to provide care to these people that need care that can't afford it in areas that they're having trouble getting access to health care. Mm -hmm. You look at some of the remote areas like the Appalachian area, and other areas that are really sent away from the rest of the population, I mean, they're not going to put a medical clinic way out there. It wouldn't be cost effective. And so it depends on people to donate and come up with some nonprofit uh, resources to be able to build a clinic and staff it. So we have our work cut out for us here in the United States. And, and you made a point earlier about the cost of of uh, the different heart diseases and the people that are dying of, of heart disease. You know, if we could reduce hospitalizations, emergency room visits and treatment on these chronic illnesses like dialysis and things like that, we could save enough money to be able to really start expanding healthcare at a much cheaper rate to be able to take care of the people that really need it. Yeah, it's a big topic there, Alan. And again, you know, celebrations out to you for continuing to follow through on this work and, and fighting the cause, leading by example, using action. So hats off to you about that, because there is so much that can be done, but you're only one person. I would love to see that we will get more united around this front so that our lifestyles can improve and we can make a move. But Shout outs to you about that. When we're talking about heart disease, it's it's just as common 
in women as it is in men. And it continues to be the number one killer as we as we talked about. But suffice to say that women are easier to die from a heart attack versus a man. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You know what the sad part is? History uh, has kind of changed, hasn't it? Uh, many, many years ago, a lot of the women were stay-at-home moms and they really weren't in the workforce, so to speak. And when you talk about a heart attack, you're talking about some of these guys coming out of steel mills and coal mines and construction jobs and, you know, people that were really out there and, and working very hard to try to make a living. Well, now we have, a, a, I mean, gosh, almost all the women are in, in the workforce today, and we're very happy to have that because mm -hmm. in the medical field especially, we definitely need uh, all able-bodied people. But, uh, you know, they're, now they're in the workforce and they're they're facing a lot of things that are harmful to them, too. One of them being stressed. Now, think about that. You're a you're a mother. You have some children at home. You have a full time job. You may be trying to advance your career, but you still have obligations at home. Just so many things that cause stress and stress is a real time factor, a risk factor for heart disease. The other thing, too, that the studies have shown that women don't have the same symptomology for heart problems as men do. Men seem to have more symptoms, and women sometimes can just kill over the heart attack with no symptoms, no chest pain, and uh, their symptoms are a lot different many times than what men's are. Mm -hmm. So you put those two things together, and sometimes that's actual women have more of a risk for heart disease than men do because men sometimes will get symptomatic and go get some help where women sometimes can have starting starting to have their arteries clogged and and never really know anything about it mm. you got to take one other thing into consideration and that's age americans are living longer and people are working longer uh and you know because of that there's a a lot of things that happen with aging. Age is a risk factor in itself. The problem is it's like boiling a frog, right? You know, mm -hmm. you throw in boiling water, he jumps right back out. But if you put it in there and boil him slow, he'll just sit there and boil. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing with this. You know, people are used to a certain health state. And as they grow older, they don't realize that they need to start looking at different things as they age, like all these screenings. Uh, cancer screenings, uh, you know, colonoscopies and, and the breast exams and mammograms. And there's so many things out there now that they screen for and people just aren't taking advantage of them like they should. You know, one of the things that I noted in your response is that it's the overload. It's the amount of things that people have that they cannot, cannot find the time to squeeze in a proper appointment. And like you said, many a times these appointments, the annual breast exam, the annual physical, the annual colonoscopy, or every three years, depending on the family and the history. But a lot of the things that I am continuously hearing is the word stress. And one of the things I always tell people about this work is that mental health is a key component to one of these preventive um, healthcare screenings that we're talking about. If you take care of yourself mentally, and I'm saying dedicate three minutes a day, and just recently I had 
um, Dr. Greg Hammer on my show, and he talked about the gain model. And that's, you know, you meditate for three minutes with some sort of intent. You know, you show gratitude. You know, you have acceptance and you're intentional and non-judgmental during this three-minute period. But focus on your breathing. Focus on your next move. Focus on your response. Because a lot of the things that you mentioned around work-related is the competitive nature that we are living in. And I think that we as people, we're forgetting that work used to be fun or work should be kind of fun because you're spending most of your hours there versus home, right? A lot of us are overconsumed with 401k plans and retirement and how much money we're going to save and the next vacation I'm going to. There are some people that I know that we're in February. They're, they're talking about, well, on November 8th, I'm going to this place. I'm like, who is thinking about that? You got, I don't know how many more months in front of you than you're thinking about this. It is difficult to really see how stress, you know, can be prevented, but we are finding ways to keep letting it in. And I think that finding that space to meditate, giving yourself that grace where you say to yourself, listen, I'm just not going to be able to do everything. I'm going to list these five things today. If I get to do three and I do them well, great. If I could get to do all five, okay. But I won't make it my habit where I do that. I've always said about work as a bouncing ball, right? And it all depends. If you are bouncing the ball and you get the ball back in your hand, that means that you can go back to work because the war, you know, the ball just keeps bouncing. But our health and our mental chakra and our well-being is made out of glass. Guess what happens when you throw that ball made out of glass on the floor? So we have to be careful to the steps that we are taking to reduce stress because stress seems to be one of these notorious stoppers. Now, let me ask you something about your time in the Air Force. How did you get involved with that? And tell us a little bit about that, Alan. Well, when I was a senior in high school, I uh, wasn't sure what exactly I wanted to do. I, I always wanted to be a physician. Uh, I wasn't able to go to college. The Air Force recruit came around and told me I could guarantee uh, what role I would play in the service. And I said, can I be a medic? And they said, yep. So Vietnam War was just finishing up at that time. And uh, so I enlisted. I was about 17 years old in two months. And then I, it was a delayed enlistment. So five days after I graduated from high school, I was on a plane to basic training. And uh, I mean, I just really loved it. My first assignment was in Spain and I worked the emergency room there and saw so much and was able to help so many people. Uh, it was just amazing. And the whole Air Force career was just something that I, I really feel like just molded me into really caring about how to prevent illness. Just to give you an example. When I got to England, uh, my last four years I spent in England, my first ambulance call in England was for a fellow who had a heart attack. And uh, it was a British national in, on flight line. And he was just laying there next to a hangar with about five guys standing around staring at him. And it was like, oh my goodness. And we got over there and we worked him yeah, of course, he was dead. If you if you go more than four or five minutes without CPR after you have a heart attack, you know, the chances are very, very slim of you pulling out of that. So that made me think about prevention. It was like, wait a minute. His death may have been preventable if someone would have started CPR. 
So I talked to the base commander and he allowed me to start a base-wide CPR training. And we had, uh, oh, it was like 98% of the, the military people and many, many dependents trained in CPR. And the, the good part is, wasn't long after that and someone else on the base in an office had a heart attack they started cpr and he came around we got him to the hospital and he lived it was just you mm. couldn't imagine how rewarding that is wow you know you you had me thinking about different things and as we're thinking about prevention i love to come up with kooky ideas and having you as the expert here now you can say yay or nay to it but I'm thinking about, you know, schools, we always have opportunities for our students to learn about certain things, whether wearing a mask most, most recently and how to prevent and wash hands properly, do different things. But I'm thinking about this CPR. And I know that a lot of us, in order to get our babysitting jobs or, or, or to land some sort of job, some of them do require us, you know, to have CPR. And to have this preventive training, what if schools began to be more intentional about teaching younger students how to do that? I can't remember. There was a news uh, story that I can't recall exactly, but I it sounded like the mom was going into cardiac arrest and the little boy was able to save his mom. And I've always thought about that story because it gets me thinking. We have to put the power in the learners of our future. And if students early on, just like you were right after coming out of high school, you were already aimed and aligned as to what your next step was, you know, even though that you had limits to what you can and cannot do. What if we were to broaden that scope? Many times you ask a student, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a doctor, which is a common answer. But are we taking the steps early on to to do this? And when I'm thinking about that, I'm considering what if we were to be more intentional about helping our students learn about preventive care earlier than they should? I don't know what do you think about my idea, but I just came up with that now. Uh, let us know if we're on to something there, Alan. Oh, yes, you certainly are. And, and, and we must be thinking on the same wavelength because... If we could reach our ch the children in an early age to get them to realize how important preventive health and safety is, that could really model the rest of their life and how they live and how long they live. Not mm -hmm. only that, and here's the big point of what you're saying, but once they really get the understanding of that, and obviously their parents probably did not because they didn't teach it in school back in those days, they would be able to go home and kind of be an ambassador for preventive health. Hey, you know, mom and dad, we learned in school today that, you know, and uh, you shouldn't smoke. It's really bad for your health. We should eat more fruits and vegetables. And, you know, can we do this and go for a walk together in the evening just for 30 minutes? Mm -hmm. There's so much that could be done in the way of health, but it all starts with awareness. It all starts with the why, you know, mm -hmm. you know why is this important? And, uh, you know, I've done some financial work in the past and I still dabble with a little bit, but, you know, it's so hard to get young people to realize today that they need to start saving money today for the future. Mm. Because once you get into the future and you don't have any money saved, <laughs> you're not going to be able to fare very well. It's the same thing with health. 
if you let your health deteriorate over the years, sooner or later, you're going to come down with something and you're not going to be able to go back and correct it. It mm -hmm. has to start when you're young. Um, I, I really, and I say this a lot, and I'm, I'm not exactly a skinny person myself, but uh, I think it's tragedy that we have the childhood obesity problems. It, about, I think there's statistics for 87% of our young people today are either obese or at least overweight, and overweight being over BMI uh, mm -hmm. of 30 uh, is obese, and over, you know, certain criteria go into everything, but it was showing that our children are really having a problem with obesity. And for that to improve over the years probably isn't going to happen. Hmm. I mean, so much to ponder in your response. Let's let's talk a little bit about your book. An ounce of prevention is worth more than you can imagine, which I already uploaded on our website. Tell us about your book. What do you want our listeners to know about this book? You know, I, I, I again, it, it to me, it's all around it, it, getting people to be aware and to stop and think about things before them. I'm going to give you an example. I don't know if my son's going to be listening to this somewhere or not, but uh, they, they came to visit me one day and they, you know, I had a new grandson and he's such a cute little fella. Well, they stayed longer than they wanted to. They were in a hurry. They got out. They jumped in the truck. And I went out to say goodbye. And I looked, and mom was holding the baby in the front seat. Now, this is like a four-month-old baby mm. in the front seat. And they were getting ready to go. And I jumped in front of the truck. And I said, you're not moving until you put that baby in the car seat. Mm. But it, it wasn't intentional. They didn't say, I really hope this baby gets hurt on this trip. It was mm. they just didn't take the time to think. Same thing with texting. Uh, you know, I was given some illustrations of texting. If it takes you two seconds, just two seconds to briefly read a text, if you're going 60 miles an hour, you're going to go like uh, 147 feet in two seconds if you go 60 miles an hour. Do you know where that car could be in uh, 147 feet? <laughs> it could be in a guardrail, it could be in the woods, it could be over an embankment, it could strike another car. Mm -hmm. But we don't think. We, and that's why I mean, an ounce of prevention is worth more than you can imagine. Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine swerving over in someone else's lane and killing a mother and a couple of children because I, I had to answer this text. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it just doesn't make sense. The risk is not worth the benefit. Mm -hmm. Pull over answer the text, wait till you get somewhere else. It's not a life and death emergency. They wouldn't have texted you. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? But we get too wrapped up in things like that. alcoholism. Every 39 minutes, someone dies of an alcohol-related car accident. We've been preaching this for years, and it's just there's no awareness there. The, the people don't think about it. And you know, if they would think every time I get in the car and I'm my, even mildly intoxicated, my reaction time is slower, my thinking is slurred, and I could get into an accident and not only kill myself, but kill someone else. You know, we, think, go we, ahead, sir. we had a past doctor here, phenomenal guest, Dr. Stephen Cohn, and he talked about the same. He worked in the operating room and, and, and trauma unit for many years, and he said, Accidents in the vehicles continuously and still are 
the number one leader in this trauma unit um, related to drinking, related to texting, related to speeding, uh, not wearing seatbelts. I think that it's a calling for the car makers or government, whoever to step up and to make cars safer. Because I don't think people are going to make the move unless they make it. Do you remember the times when the cars, I forget, was it a Mazda maybe, or maybe a Nissan? I can't, I can't think of the model. But the cars, when you when you put the ignition in, the seatbelt came on automatically, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if we need to go back to that, but I think that we need to start being preventive around that, especially these cars that cost a lot of money and they go really fast. Imagine what they are now, you know, going at that speed with someone not looking at the road, sleeping, drinking. So we have to be careful about those things. Are there some things that you think about when you're thinking about your advocacy work that you want to do more of and you can't because you don't have the manpower? And if and if and if so, what are some of those things? Uh, I, I I personally think that the the key again is getting out to the public. I mean, you know, you can have I have a website, I have a podcast. You know, I, I try to get the message out as much as possible, but that's only going to be effective with the people that are actually listening or going to my website. I think we need more people that are so concerned that we go around like I'm trying now to uh, be able to speak at places like the Eagles and the Elks and, and the Veterans uh, VFW and any community center that you can find. Uh, libraries will let you come in and give a talk and advertise it. You know, there's just so many places. And if we could get that message out and help people get the message out and carry on and get to their families and friends, uh, you know, it could start a revolution. Now, I'm not, I don't have any delusions of grandeur. I don't think tomorrow everyone's going to be, you know, all of a sudden Mr. or Mrs. Safe. But on the other hand, how many lives? And how much health that we saved would it be worth to do all this work? You know, just one <laughs> to me, every, every single person. I've gotten so many different messages in on, hey, man, I never really thought about that. Uh, I, I did a podcast one time on getting your car inspected and how some men really brag about having a friend, you know, lick him and stick him Joe down there. And it would just put your inspection sticker on, not even look at your car. Then you let your wife and your family go out in a car that might not be safe with bad brakes or bad tires. Mm -hmm. it, it, we, we just don't think. And we have to get that mentality about, hey, safety comes first. Even if it takes a little more time, even if it's a little more work, we've got to start thinking safety. And preventive health, you just can't. You know, my doctor told me I needed to get some spots checked. I got some spots checked. And sent me to the dermatologist. Then I had to go to a Mohs surgeon and had like three big holes cut in me, getting cancer out of me. And, hmm. uh, you know, it's just one of those things where if I went in and saw my doctor, you know, a couple of them were on my head. I can't see what's up there. Uh, hmm. Obviously, there's no hair, but I couldn't see any, any spots. And she did. And she followed through and got me an appointment. And thank goodness they got all the cancer out. And, uh, you know, that's that's the blessing of preventive health 
there shouldn't be people dying of colon cancer when we have colonoscopies and we have surgeons. And, and you know, if it's caught early, the chances of, of uh, recovery are just enormous. Mm -hmm. But if you let it go beyond that, the chances get slimmer and slimmer every day. Well, thank you for, for being transparent and using yourself to model. And once again, it just speaks to the type of man you are, Alan. We are honored to have you on this platform spreading worth, knowledge, worth, love, and worth of safety to tons of people who will be listening to this. And I'm so happy that you've joined us today. Can you tell me more about your phase um, prevention or preventive health and safety engagement? And why did you come up with this acronym? Well, it, that's exactly what um, we're trying to do is get people engaged in number one, uh, our group in trying to help it grow so we can provide more teaching and training screenings, man, I'd love to be able to take a, a whole batch of nurses and, and technicians and things into these really low income areas where they can't afford screenings and at least take their blood pressure and maybe a little bit of a history and find out if they have any symptoms of diabetes. You know, that, that would just be so wonderful to be able to do things like that. So I'm trying to build that force up. And then the other side is just trying to do everything I can. I love to speak. I love to share my message. And, uh, you know, everywhere I get a chance, I try to do that. Uh, half of everything that, that would ever come in from any kind of speaking engagement goes right to uh, sick or, or excuse me, uh, the Children's Hospital, uh, you know, and I've been supporting them for so many years now. And it's just a worthy cause. And it's it's being able to get children free of their cancer and keeping their parents in touch with them. So it's a really worthy cause. But you put those two things together right there and, and you're helping people and you're helping children. It, it was St. Jude's Hospital. Sorry. When you get my age, some of the names slip a little bit. St. Jude's Hospital. But, um, you know, it's just a, a grand thing to be able to get out and spread the message and hope that some people will take it to heart. Well, thank you for spreading that message of positivity and of safety. And talking about your website, it is something to look at. Well, you have a blog session. And let's first get listeners to understand where to go. It's preventive health and safety.com. So one yes. word, preventive health and safety.com. And when you do enter this friendly site, he has an about, contact us and home. And there's a section here that's blogs, just articles that he's taken out to make sure um, Alan has to make sure that you understand what to do during winter, fire, um, how to stay um, engaged when you're talking to someone about even cutting the grass or house chores versus I can and I can't do and so on. So I really do like the approach that you've taken to support people in a very friendly way, a non-evasive way, if you will, to stay healthy. So thank you for that message. Um, in this line of work, I know that you come across a lot of people and obviously in the field, whether it is during your time in the Air Force or it could be in your dialysis unit. Has there been a patient or patients that have touched you in a way 
that have pushed you to think further about doing this work. And they drive you to think that I'm doing this work just because of this situation here. Well, one of the things back in uh, when I was in Pennsylvania doing dialysis, I had to go up to the hospital. We we had a dialysis unit, but then we'd also go up to the hospital and dialyze people up there. And one of our patients from the unit was up in the hospital and they told me he needed to be dialyzed. So I went up. And uh, when I got to the room, a few people came out, including the doctor. And, you know, uh, he just kind of shook his head and he said he doesn't need a treatment. And uh, I mean, I know them very well. I get to know my patients very well. And I went in and talked to them. And uh, he said, I'm done, Alan. I, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, are you sure that's your decision? I mean, that's a decision that everyone has to come to. Uh, and he said, yeah, it's time. And his wife was there and she was crying. He was crying. I was crying. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I sat there and talked to both of them. And, you know, he was one of those that he lived on a farm, hardly ever saw a doctor. When he finally, I mean, he he never even had a symptom until he couldn't urinate. He went into the emergency room. They said he's in kidney failure. He has bad diabetes. He has high blood pressure. And he realized that by him not taking care of himself when he was younger caused him to be, I mean, he was only like 67, 68 years old, uh, and which isn't real bad, but I mean, it's still premature death. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about a loved one, anytime is premature, but definitely at that age, people live a lot longer than that now. Uh, and so, you know, about two days later, he finally passed. Um, and it, it was just so sad and so senseless. And that's really when I got on the campaign about, you know, doing screenings, get people in and getting their blood pressure checked and stuff like that. Uh, different churches and stuff I'd go to and, you know, tell them how important it was and ask. Him. I said, when you get your checkup, I want you to send me an email and tell me about it. Uh, you know, just because a lot of people say I'm going to do it, but they never do it. Mm. But the thing that you skip, or the thing that you don't do with preventive health and safety, it may end up being the biggest mistake of your life. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing that. And we're going to dedicate that this show to your patient and friend, obviously, and for people like him who go way too soon because they didn't make the right choices early on. When we talk about the five health screenings, Alan, the ones that we need and the ones that we should skip. Tell us more or less what those are and what we should be trying to think about. Well, with heart disease being the number one killer, obviously we've talked about, you know, it's really good to keep a good check on your weight. Uh, there, You can go online almost anywhere and ask to pull up a BMI calculator and put your weight and your height in there tells you what your BMI is, and then it ranges that BMI and shows you if you're obese, you're overweight, you're underweight, or just where you are. And staying in that range is, is very important. Uh, then you always have, when you start out at the very beginning, the babies need to be checked. You know, a lot of people bring the baby home from the hospital. They may take them in for one visit, and that's it. And that's so inadequate. They need to have that well baby check in a couple weeks and then a month and then three months, six months, a year and 18 months. I mean, that's just a no brainer. They should have those done. Uh, 
Uh, as we get up in age, there are things that are more prevalent. Women with breast cancer, obviously. Every woman should be taught how to do a self-breast exam. And that way they can at least be on the lookout for anything that they may need to see a physician about. But they still should go in and get checked up on a regular basis so they can at least have a breast exam. Then when they get older, obviously, they'll have to get a mammogram. They should be having pap smears up to about the age of 70. Uh, and prostate for men, prostate cancer, again, so curable if it's caught early. If it's not caught early, it can be deadly. So uh, sugar, uh, you know, your diabetes, what's your sugar level? You know, you might have symptoms. I'm thirsty all the time. I'm urinating all the time. I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I mean, some of those are signs of, of uh, diabetes. So you, you need to get that screening done and make sure that your, your, your blood level is where it needs to be with the sugar or you're going to develop diabetes and start having some symptoms. So uh, the eye exams, obviously, very, very important. Uh, just so many things. Anything that is recommended, and it all goes back to what you were saying earlier about the physician's visit. The physician knows at what time and what age you should have these screenings done. You know, someone who has a family history or any heart problems, they usually recommend having a treadmill test done around 45 or 50 to see what that heart, uh, you know, looks like and how the functions is. So that doctor can help you with that and plan a good course of action for you as you get up in years. Now, when we're talking about that plan of action, what do you do for self-care? How do you take care of yourself throughout being that you're so busy all of the time and work and you're preoccupied? What do you do to take care of self? I, I say yes. <laughs> by, by that, I mean, when it's time for me to have my routine physical to VA, I say, mm -hmm. yes, uh, I'm going to make that appointment. If that doctor tells me to go to the dermatologist, I say yes. If she says it's time for your colonoscopy, I say yes. If they say we need to do another heart cath on you, I say yes. Uh, I think you should talk to the dietitian because you're a little overweight and your cholesterol and your bad cholesterol are off, and I say yes. Uh, it takes time, and believe me, I run three dialysis centers, and, and I'm very, very busy. But if, if I don't take care of myself, I'm not going to be running those dialysis clinics very long. Mm -hmm. And so that probably is the most important thing is to get into a routine of realizing that it may seem like preventive health and safety is crimping your schedule, but it's better than not having a schedule. Mm. I love that. Say yes. And then let the energies and the steps follow. The floor is yours, my friend. Please leave us with a message. Enlighten us with your words so that we can remember you of the steps we should take in your journey, in your path, and what we should worry about moving forward. I would just really, really encourage everybody to spend some time thinking about preventive health and safety, number one. And number two, make it a family thing. I mean, really engage the family. I, I, you know, just as an example, one of those podcasts I did was on fire. And, uh, and I was mentioning, you know, that we should have a fire plan. 
And someone wrote back and said, you, you mean we have to have a fire drill at home? And that sounds funny, but think about this. Everybody's upstairs, right? And all of a sudden, the smoke detectors go off and they're just banging out as loud as can be. Those little children, they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. The husband's trying to decide if he should run downstairs and see if there's a fire or what to do. The wife doesn't know what to do. Kids are worried about the dog. There's just so much chaos that takes place when emergencies happen, not to mention the fact that we got that fight or flight thing going on, the adrenaline's pumping, and we're, you know, we don't often take time to think. That's why it's better to have a plan than it is to try to react in a situation that's causing chaos. So have a plan. All right. If we hear the fire alarms go off, here's where we get together, all of us. Uh, we don't want to go around the house looking for anybody. Everybody's going to meet right here. And then this is going to happen next. And that's going to happen next. Have a plan out, especially for upstairs. <laughs> I've been telling people for years, if you have a two-story or more house, you need to have a rope ladder. You mm. need to have some way to get out of that second-story uh, window and down to the ground safely. Because if the downstairs is engulfed, you're not going to make it down that way. The smoke's going to be bellowing upward. And you could be unconscious in a matter of minutes. So get that window open, get that ladder out, and get those people, get your family out of there safely. Love that message, Alan. Plan and stay ready. Yes, sir. Plan and stay ready. You know, we need to enrich our worlds with acts of beauty and compassion, just like our guests. For kindness is the universal language spoken by few, but it's understand and understood by all. Because on this platform, we won't be overlooked or labeled or put in boxes. This is no longer our plight and our fight is for anyone and everyone who feels a need to be understood. We are strong as individuals, but unstoppable when we unite. Tune in friends to another He's Just a Social Worker show coming real soon to a town near you. We out. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much. You really have a lot of insight yourself, sir. Please note that the views expressed here are my own and not a representation of my employers and clients. Thank you for listening. We're always here for you. Just message us and we'll get back to you within 24 hours. Thank you. More than just at He's Just a Social Worker. In memory of my mother, Matilde De La Rosa. This is dedicated to you, Mom. Miss you so much. En memoria de mi madre, Matilde De La Rosa. Esto va dedicado a ti, Mamá. Te extraño mucho.